This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators and the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, I always appreciate how many intelligent things you have to say about the world. I do too. But, you know, a cool thing about social media is you can say it to lots of people, often in text form. That is true. I feel like doing it by emoji is weird. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't maybe get, you know, all the points across. And I'm not really good at it. Yeah. At emojis, you struggle? I do. My mother texts me in emojis and I always have to ask her, like, what does that mean? She's like, it's snowing. That is the, that breaks down the digital native myth and immigrant myth right off the bat, doesn't it? I guess. That's also ridiculous. (laughs) So, but the thing I'm curious about is I learn a lot from you. And so I think other people could learn a lot from you. So I'm curious, do you have a strategy or an approach for having an online public voice? (laughs) I didn't realize that's where you're going to (laughs) go. I enjoy sarcasm. I do enjoy humor. And I do enjoy a good article in discussing it. I think my strategy is to speak softly and carry a big stick. No, that's terrible. I don't really think that works. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and I'd, I'd need like a lot of interpretation on what that actually means. Exactly, because like, how do you speak softly on, on like a social media platform? Do you just talk to a certain amount of people? And what is the big stick that you're using in dialogue? I don't know. I mean, I would think it would be you would have it all lower case letters. Oh, yes. And, and in parentheses, maybe, with some shh emojis, right? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Or maybe the big <laughs> stick is all caps locked, like you idiot, which is not something you should probably do. I would, I recommend if you're trying to change someone's opinion, not call them an idiot. And that, that's a whole point. Like, is it, how effective is it to change people's opinions online? You know, what can we do? And I think a lot of people are asking questions like that. I've seen even in Congress with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, there's been, she's been tweeting and Snapchatting and Instagramming a lot of what it means to be an incoming representative. And A lot of people have been like, oh, she's social media savvy. She's reaching people in a unique way. And so I think my question is, how can educators and students potentially be effective in using social media? That's interesting. How do you use it? I don't know. I don't think I do a very good job. So let's start with that. Because I think one thing I read, I don't remember who said it, but I read at one point, someone said we often post out of negative emotions, right? Like frustration is a kind of a reason we get frustrated about something. So we, we then tweet it out. And I know that that's been true for myself before. And so I've tried to counteract that. One, one strategy I had is instead of expressing my opinions, I try to ask questions. And so you've probably seen, like, I, I put a lot of like inquiry questions. I frame them as inquiry oh, questions yes. and ask them out there. Just like Socrates. Yes. Just like Socrates from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. So based on this conversation, it's clear we, don't, we are not experts on this topic. So maybe it would be helpful to bring in our guests now. What do you think, Michael? Let's do it. Ellen Middaw, how are you? I'm good. How are you guys? Fantastic. Who are you? And tell us a little bit about your background in education. 
Sure. I am an assistant professor of child and adolescent development at San Jose State in California, and I study youth civic engagement and specifically digital media and youth civic engagement. Interesting. I've been to San Jose one time. It was just overnight. I was going. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's about what most people say. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to go to San Jose now. It, it was kind of off my radar, but now that we're talking about it. So what has your background in education been like? How did you get to this point where you were really interested in youth civic activism? Well, like most of us, it began long before I went to college. So I grew up in South Carolina and I have always been interested in what leads people to speak up when the conditions around them aren't fair or just and interested in whose voices get to be heard. So I think what leads me to want to study civic engagement is how do young people get their voices heard? So how do they understand what's going well and what's wrong in their community and how do they speak up? So youth voice is a big part of what I do. And then the digital media aspect is, well, one, I live in Silicon Valley and two, it is where, as you mentioned with Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and our current president and all of that, there's a lot of politics is happening online. I'm very interested in how young people learn to use it effectively. Have you been able to access different kinds of conversations being near Silicon Valley, which I think recently there's been more and more people pointing some fingers towards the people in Silicon Valley about taking some responsibility for mm -hmm. the platforms they're creating and the environments that exist. But is, is it a different conversation being in that environment? No, I mean, what's interesting is some of the people who work in Silicon Valley are actually the most skeptical and protective about things like privacy and voice. And to me, I think the biggest issue is we do need to hold companies accountable, but that only goes so far. And, you know, we need young people and ourselves to be educated about how to use this technology effectively and advantageously. Sometimes I feel like when we talk about internet in particular and social media and how sometimes it can be ugly, it reminds me of the Lord of the Flies when we realize that the beast is is us, which <laughs> yeah. is you know, scary as all get out. Yeah, and I think the other thing is the technology is part of it, but I remember, I think I'm a bit older than you guys, but I remember when email came out and everybody thought there's no way we can learn to effectively communicate over email. It's just going to be a disaster. And, you know, 20 years later, we all use email more or less effectively. And that's kind of my take on. I always remember the first email commercial. I think it was Yahoo. And a man gave a woman like his email address because he was hitting on her at a party. And it was at the time so absurd that you would give someone an email address as a form of communication, which kind of now, you know, remembering that just points out how quickly technology has changed in society. But it's also interesting to think about how the mediums change the way we communicate, right? Sending an email is super different than calling someone. Sending a text is different. Do you remember like your first emails that you wrote? For me, there were letters. Because I was in college and they were just like letters and, you know, I had my formal introduction and it was pretty long and now it's like nothing. I kind of miss the old days. Yeah, they used to be more like letters and sometimes they still are. My students now treat email more as that's kind of their professional communication context mm. and text is their informal communication context. And so we're all learning new norms of how to communicate in these different contexts and they're evolving. And so I feel like that's our job as educators is to kind of keep track and learn from students as they're developing norms and help kind of guide them to think about their communication goals. 
Well, Michael, if you want to do the back and forth emails that are kind of throwbacks, I'd be happy to do kind of an Alexander Hamilton, Aaron Ooh. Burr series with you. M. Milton. Or maybe John Adams and Abigail Adams letters. I don't know. Whatever you prefer. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> Definitely John and Abigail. <laughs> they did have a really cute relationship. I know. They, I, I read about their pen pal relationship. It was quite extensive. Yeah. And sweet. So speaking of sweet, <laughs> you were recently published in TRSE. So congratulations. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You wrote an article with Chris Evans entitled, mm -hmm. Did You Know? Cultivating Online Public Voice in Youth. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So this study grew out of research that Chris and I were doing. It was part of a district-wide initiative in Northern California. And it, this was a very teacher-driven initiative. So we were working with a group of teachers and asking them to help co-create curriculum in their classroom that responds to civic engagement in the digital age. So the idea was to really throw out some challenges and provide some tools and some coaching. And we partnered with the National Writing Project. And as teachers were developing their practice, uh, my role with Chris was to really study what they were doing and see what we can learn about effective civic education in the digital age. So this article really focused in on the question of what looks promising in terms of helping young people engage in effective dialogue online and to present their voice publicly. So the study uh, had two components. One, we surveyed graduating seniors and asked them about their experiences in high school. And the uh, one question we had, I've always wondered, how much do teachers need to teach using technology? And then how much is it enough just to teach critical thinking. So we asked about students' experiences with teachers teaching them to have dialogue face-to-face, -to, -face, to present their ideas, the things you would normally see in a classroom, do a research project, do a presentation, engage in an academic, a structured academic controversy or something like that. But then we also asked about supports for doing this online. So I know a lot of what I do online is just informed by everything I learned before we had all of this technology, right? Just critical thinking, the ability to communicate effectively. So one of the things we looked at is, are young people more likely to feel comfortable researching, expressing themselves online? Does any of this need to be taught through digital tools? So one of the things we found is, particularly for online expression, it's helpful to have some education using the digital tools. And then the other piece was really more of an in-depth case study of what teachers were doing with students. What tools did you use? And did you have to go into depth in using the tools because the students didn't have a lot of experience with them? Or was it because you had to help them rethink how to use tools that maybe they'd been using for personal, just social reasons? A little of both. So in terms of researching, we asked sort of pretty broad questions, and then we went and observed teachers as they were teaching students research skills, but also to use a social network that was really a more of an academic social network moderated by teachers and students called Youth Voices. And a lot of what they taught them, some of it students know how to do, and then some of it is about the norm. So there were some technical things that needed to be taught, but that was pretty minimal. A lot of it was how do you think about who your audience is? How do you get them to respond to you? How do you search for materials that in a way that will help you find what you need quickly, right? 
they know how to go online and express themselves on social media when they're talking about their favorite band or what somebody's wearing or something they've spent there or something more serious that they've been motivated to get involved in. But in terms of learning to express yourself for different audiences or how to give critical feedback without starting something, those kinds of things, giving them a chance to practice And what I would say the biggest thing I learned from this is how infrequently young people have access to an audience. They don't necessarily spend, I think there's a lot of fear from adults that they put things out online and it's going to blow up. More commonly, they put their ideas out online and is anyone paying attention? So one of the things we observed in the classrooms was how excited young people got when they would write about their essays on the civil rights issue of our time or their thoughts or putting out a post on that or about something they're facing in their community. And to see somebody they didn't know comment on it and take it seriously, that was extremely powerful. And that was cultivated by the teachers. You know, Michael and I, in 2013, based on one of his blog posts and activities in his class, wrote an article about he tried to find an authentic audience for his students when they were doing Enlightenment philosopher projects. And so he mm-hmm. gave them blogs and they created Twitter handles. And then he reached out to his, his PLN and basically asked people to give them feedback about like, you know, what real world questions they would ask. So it'd be like, what does Rousseau think of No Child Left Behind? And then people would mm-hmm. like ask it. And it, it was pretty cool, right? My, I mean, yeah. you did that it was, years ago. It was cutting edge back in 2013. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was actually a lot of fun. And I wish that I continued to do it, but it was one of those things where for time you just. Yeah. So, what's great about the platform that the teachers were using is this network is ongoing and it has a number of classrooms involved. So, you have this more persistent community so they can set up exchanges between classrooms. I have my college students sometimes go on and comment on posts that a teacher will contact me and say, we're looking for commenters and my students are writing about this. And if I can link it to a concept in my classroom, I'll have my students go on and respond. And so they get a little back and forth going. Um, They'll ask clarifying questions. And the high school students are having the opportunity of having college students read and comment on their work. The college students have the opportunity. I teach classes on adolescent development and things like that. So they get to see kind of real-world examples of youth struggling with identity or learning about social cognition or things like that. That's That's really cool. I'm doing something similar. I'm teaching a social media curriculum doctoral class. And so uh, we would love to, by the way, I'm inviting you to tweet with us if you ever want to. We use the the hashtag social media ed. And kind of the point is to be able to share some of our ideas in the class beyond our classroom walls and practice like what does it look like to engage in conversations in these spaces. And a lot of members of the social media SIG at site also tweet using that hashtag. And I'm trying to get everyone to use it more. So it's interesting to think how we could expand the learning environments and then also discuss like what does this look like? Because then it leads to, I would think in your class too, Michael, with your assignment you did, it leads to opportunities to talk about how we can use these different mediums to communicate ideas. And some of the the questions or ideas or things that may come up can be very natural opportunities for learning experiences in how we do that. Yeah, and I think some of what I've seen teachers talking about, and this wasn't part of the article, but where I've seen some of this work go in the meantime, is having the conversation with students of, we want to call attention to something or we want to educate people about something, which platform should we put it on? 
should we put it on a poster in the school because that's who we want to reach? Or should we put it on Twitter? Do we need a hashtag? How do we get people to follow it? Do you know five people you could invite to share it? And really talking through the mechanics of how do you get to an audience? That part often is part of the challenge. And with high school students, at least, you can start to have those conversations. So in your study, you looked at how teachers in this North Cal mm-hmm. district were you know, teaching the skills. Or What were the teachers doing? Like, What type of lessons or what type of activities mm-hmm. were they doing with their students? The ones that I focused on were semester long. One was in an English class. The other was in a, I think, a law education class. And so these were kind of semester long research projects. So they were able to kind of return over time. And we've had other, I've seen other classrooms since do similar things. So it fits pretty well into an English class, but also into other kind of social studies, humanities classrooms. Anytime you're doing a ongoing research project, or it could be a short term a week or two where you quickly learn about something and share and express. They were interested in the longer term. So one, they spent the semester learning. Students would work in groups, learn it, ta- discussing what they think the civil rights issue of our time is. And so that would be what they were investigating. So they spent a lot of time researching and they would start to post different thoughts along. So they posted multiple times as they were engaged in their process and then have other people comment on their research. And the idea was they would share what they were learning along the way so that they were getting feedback. And then the other one, these were students who were doing a classroom-wide research project on water rights with the idea of informing themselves, culminating in them actually going to visit a state representative to discuss it, but they were using technology in different ways. So That teacher, it wasn't just blogging. She spent more time, I'd say, using collaborative tools, encouraging students to interact with each other, talking about the issue. So that was the other piece I did want to mention was it was fascinating to see the classroom dynamics change as they're able to, even on just kind of a shared Google Doc, comment as they're working. That opened up the classroom in a lot of ways that I observed the same classroom when they were having a whole group discussion without the technology. And you just saw a lot more people interacting simultaneously as they were evaluating sources and deciding, does this make our point or does this make our point? Is this an effective way to argue for this position on water rights, which is a big issue in California. And so some of it's about producing for an outside audience. Some of it is about collaborating in real time with each other and starting to exchange ideas and ask questions. So how did they figure out what was an effective message? Was it just like the group came together and coalesced around, yes, this seems like a good message? Or did they end up having to look to outside sources to figure out, was it mentor text or was it research? What did they look to? They were doing research and the teacher modified the crap test which I think you guys are familiar with. So that set of guidelines for how to evaluate sources, but they didn't just take the whole thing. She kind of boiled it down to a few basic questions and that they would refer to as they were. So different people would be putting texts into the shared Google doc and then asking and commenting on whether they thought it was a credible source based on those guidelines. And then she would discuss with them as a class. So the idea was to give them individual time but connected individual time, right? So there, she would give them a few sources, they would go through them, they would start adding in questions and looking at each other's questions and arguing a little bit about whether it was a credible source. So getting them in the habit of thinking about it. And then they discussed what to use as a class. 
That's fascinating. I like it. I feel like with uh, social studies, you could definitely do that looking at, so I teach world history. So I'm always trying mm-hmm. to figure out a way to connect things to the present, but looking at like, you know, an event that's happening, like the Rohingya uh, genocide, and then looking mm-hmm. back and trying to figure out what's going on, like filling mm-hmm. in the background of it and having that discussion there. What in the crap test, and we'll, for those listening, we'll make sure we have a, a link to the crap test. So it, it's an acronym. Yeah. Credibility, recency. Accuracy. Accuracy. And P. No, oh, yeah. I think author. I always yeah. get lost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is one of the limitations of the craft test, I think. I think it has Purpose, a lot. Maybe. Or perspective. It has a lot of guidelines. So it can, I think, sometimes be a little overwhelming for students. So I yeah. liked that she kind of pulled out a few things to get them to scaffold and get them in the habit. When And they would use the youth. It was youth voices. Youth Voices is one. You have to, classes can kind of join the site. And Paul Allison is a teacher who runs it and created it. And now it has a lot of member teachers involved. And it's very teacher run. And he also has a a video series, a YouTube series, I think, Teachers Teaching Teachers, where teachers come on and talk about how they're using it. So it's a great resource that seems to be persisting. So that's one source. I've other te- not all of the teachers were using that. I've had a few teachers use it extensively, and I get occasional requests to comment. And then in this project, I'd say one teacher used it extensively. The other teacher was more focused on the collaborative tools and used it a little bit. And for collaborative tools, they were using what Google Docs or the Microsoft Google version? Docs. Yeah, yeah. They were in a district that had adopted the Google Suite. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. What other findings came out of this study that you think are really important? Mm -hmm. So one finding is, I think, as much as we talk about young people being comfortable with technology, learning to really produce media effectively for an audience is something they actually need a lot of practice with and something they don't necessarily get as much practice with as adults might think. And so I think that part is really important to think about in the classroom The other is the piece about needing to help young people connect to audience. And then being able, I think specifically for civic engagement, is learning to find out who your collaborators are. Who are the people who share your concerns? So one of the powerful things was seeing young people say, oh, I was reading a post from a kid in New York and I had no idea they have the same problems there that we have here. That's where you start to discover kind of systemic inequality and structural solutions to problems. That's interesting too, because it seems to bring people from California and New York together like the, I don't know if you'd normally have that type of experience except for a pen pal. Yeah. And the extent to which they were excited to also just hear from students at other high schools in the same district was kind of interesting as well. So you start to kind of build community. You can do it within a city, but also across the country. And I know some of the teachers on that site, Chris Sloan in particular, he's one of the teachers on the website who's done a lot of work trying to set up dialogue with students, say, from Utah and Oakland. So getting across political difference, and they've done some really nice reflections on facilitating conversations where people might not agree. This is really great work. And I've found the same thing always that we all have to kind of figure out how to navigate and use these online spaces. And it's always the the digital native myth, which we talked about earlier, is super prominent. If you've ever, you know, I, I use Twitter with my college students and 
they many of them don't know how to use it. And even yeah. if they do, they don't know how to use it in the professional ways that we're trying to do it. And they, so they have this context collapse where they the actually the hard I always tell people the hardest group to teach it to is people who've used it for personal reasons, as opposed to new users. You know, it's like the uh, I wrote a paper recently where I used the metaphor that, you know, we wouldn't assume that someone who grows up in a literate culture with books knows how to read. We teach them, but we have this idea that people who grow up around technology know how to use it well, and we just like don't teach it. Right. So seems like we need to. <laughs> yeah. And I also, I think a lot of people tend to look at the discourse that happens online right now and say, well, we should avoid it or stay away from it. And I feel super strongly that if just the way we learn to have difficult conversations face-to-face, you need to learn how to have them online, and that's going to lead to more productive discourse, but we can't kind of shy away from it. So what advice do you have for teachers seeking to navigate civic online reasoning and engaging with different audiences? So I think one thing that's really useful to do is to either find what you see as a productive conversation to join. So Dan, you were talking about the hashtag that your students use. So if there's an ongoing conversation that you can have your students join, that's a useful way. Or if you have a partner classroom where you can set up dialogue. So rather than just saying, let's put our voices out there, find a conversation to join, I think is a much more productive way to approach that to ensure that it's going to be a useful experience. I think talking through with young people, what is the purpose of this conversation? Like, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to convince somebody? What does constructive feedback look like? So talking through some of the norms is useful. I would say those are big parts of it. Also, you can start with just having them look at examples. So using social media as text is also part of an entry point into online dialogue. You know, what looks like a productive exchange? What's a less productive exchange? And where do you find them? It's definitely something we all need to be doing. And so teaching those skills in school seem natural so that our next generation of activists who a lot of kids are already activists, they're already Mm -hmm. doing it to ensure that they can understand not only how their voice is heard, but how they can make positive change for a more just world. So it's really great project. Thanks. I owe quite a bit of a debt of gratitude to the teachers who are innovating in this space, right? I'm kind of studying what they're doing, but they're doing a lot of the innovation. Yeah, teachers are really good at figuring these things out. And so I I love that you gleaned a lot of wisdom from them. Oh, I have one really specific detailed suggestion. After watching a lot of teachers use new technology in the classroom, there are always problems and that's daunting. The biggest thing I always do when I'm doing something new in my class that I learned from watching other teachers is figuring out which students learning it quickly and letting them help each other. Yeah. That that moves the process really quickly. So there's always five that figure it out quickly and there are five that struggle and a bunch in between and they, I don't need to solve the problem for everyone, right? They help each other quite nicely. There was a teacher who who I oh, I forget the teacher's name, but they said go go to three before me. Yeah, three people yeah. in. The- <laughs> exactly, but even you know, if you're trying to get everyone on quickly, I saw something that was a 15 minute process turn into a five minute process just with that tweak. Interesting, great, Ellen Mitta, Thank you so much for chatting with us today. Thank you. It's great to talk to you guys. It is great to be talked to. So where can our listeners find you and your work online? 
So I am at emidah, E-M-I-D-D-A-U-G-H on Twitter. So I always share my work on Twitter. And then you can link to my website at San Jose State as well in the show notes. So everyone send Ellen some tweets and we will make sure that your online voice is cultivated. (laughs) Thank you. At the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun, creative in education, or you just want to civically chat, tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook, and I'm fairly certain one other place. And of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and anywhere you want us to be. And if you write a five-star review, you will help us defeat the Apple algorithms that try to keep our podcast away from people. Get on, get on our side and help us win the battle with the algorithms. You can find me on Twitter. I am at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast signing off. Zach, Zach, he's a Lego maniac.